Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's subcast. Welcome to another edition of the Subcast, and today I am delighted to be joined by Jared Lyons, uh, a very well-known economist, uh, particularly if in the UK, you will know Jared from his many um, appearances on media uh, and in the Brexit debate. Uh, He's a very prominent senior economist. He successfully saw the uh, financial crisis coming. He warned about the European exchange rate mechanism and once described the euro single currency as probably the worst economic idea ever thought up by anyone anywhere at any time. Uh, More recently, he has been, I think I'm right in saying, providing informal advice to the new conservative government and also runs uh, a podcast called What the Hell is Economics, which I'd recommend you all check out and go and uh, have a listen to. Jared, welcome to the subcast. It's great to be here and thank you for inviting me on. So let's just get straight into it. Um, I wrote last week on Trussonomics and suggested that actually what we're witnessing is a clear break from the post-Brexit conservatism that uh, we had with Theresa May and, and Boris Johnson. Would you share that assessment? Um, Yes, I would. I think the most interesting aspect is that it's a change in direction towards being on the positive side and also realistic at the same time about the need for a pro-growth economic vision. Let's put it this way. Since the 2008 global financial crisis, economic growth in Western Europe has really slumped, including in the UK. So about a decade ago, weak growth meant that the Treasury went to the then Chancellor, George Osborne, they were probably pushing against an open door and said, weak growth means to get your finances into shape, there needs to be austerity. Roll on to the last couple of years, politics might have been very different, but the economic thinking at the Treasury was the same. Growth is weak, get the finances into shape, Chancellor, and now it was Rishi Sunak, you need to have tax increases. So a decade ago, it was austerity. Now it's tax increases. List Trust has essentially said, why accept that we're a weak growth, low growth, low productivity, low wage economy. Let's turn it on its head. And what do we need to do to become a much stronger growth economy? And hence, it's the change in direction that's the key. Obviously, all the nitty bits in terms of the vision being positive, but how you actually execute it remains to be seen. So when we think about the growth strategy and we think about all the things that came out of the the mini budget or the fiscal event, the sort of, you know, the tax changes, the uh, uh, the new investment zones, the um, uh, changes around corporate corporation tax, bankers bonuses, all the rest of it. Um, is it fair, do you think then, to describe this as a return to a conservative politics that we've seen before? Do you see this as being a sort of return to the 80s in some sense or do you think that's unfair and actually this is something new? Um, Well there are clearly aspects of the past that are relevant for now but at the same time it's new. Um, 
it's important to say that it hasn't got off to a great start if you look at how the markets have behaved and how the general public has reacted. And in that respect, it's partly because the vision has yet to be articulated fully. I think the big danger is that the critics of trust economics attach the phrase or the slogan rather of trickle-down economics to it. Now, trickle-down economics is a silly idea in some respects, but the concept is if you throw money in at the top, it trickles down to the bottom, however you define the top and the bottom. Trust economics is nothing like that, but because she and other senior politicians have talked a lot about tax cuts, a lot of her approach has been associated with tax cuts. Now, tax cuts are important, but they're not the centerpiece of her economic vision. At the same time, it's not got off to a good start because of that ill-fated mini-budget, and we can talk about that in a moment. But coming back to your particular question, um, the positive aspect for many people is the association with the past in terms of Thatcher about supply-side economics and about really invigorating the business sector to try and boost investment and innovation. But there is a slight subtle difference, which is very relevant, because in the last 14 years since that 2008 global financial crisis, Britain has become, admittedly like a few other countries, Britain has become associated with low interest rates and cheap money. What trusts also tried to do, which was very different to Thatcher in the past, is to say, let's now use fiscal policy as a stabilizer in the near term in order to allow monetary policy to start to focus on tackling inflation, rather than have, as we've seen in the last 14 years, every time there's an economic shock, every time there's a problem, the Bank of England has to rush in, cut interest rates, pump more liquidity, more money into the system, and in the process, add to lots of other challenges and create other problems. Uh, The difference between trust in the past is the role of fiscal policy. Clearly, she wants fiscal discipline, wants to reduce debt to GDP, as did Thatcher and other previous prime ministers. But the slight difference and distinction with the past is that role for fiscal policy. But the big similarity is that supply side agenda. Because if you go back to some of those supply side reforms and indeed the the package of the 80s and you, you you look at the effects that those reforms had on the country. I mean, my reading, at least, and I we may we may differ on this, but but looking at the evidence that, that's emerged since, is that essentially Britain became more prosperous and competitive, but also those reforms did come with a number of costs that, in some ways, I see as providing the backdrop to the political volatility and the changes that we saw during the the two thousands and the twenty tens. We do know that overall, London and the southeast tended to prosper more than elsewhere. We know that uh, there were also some pretty potent social and cultural effects that that came with some of those reforms over the longer term. And so, I guess where I'm where I'm struggling with trustonomics is the idea that yeah, you know, I'm won over by the argument that we need to revisit the growth problem. Right? I, I completely get that. I understand why she's doing what she's doing. But how on earth does the Conservative Party hold together? this post-Brexit coalition of working class voters, more northern voters, um, you know, squeezed voters, often pretty economically interventionist voters, quite comfortable with, with paying a bit of tax if it means they get better public services versus what we saw in the mini budget. Like how, how do those two things, I appreciate you're an economist, you're, you know, you're not 
sort of in making the political choices and decisions. But what what are your views as to how this doctrine is compatible with this new conservative electorate? Okay, a whole host of issues again there. Can I just start by saying that um, this underlying premise, and I know you didn't say north-south divide, but there's this underlying premise that often comes out that the country is divided solely in north-south terms. I grew up in central London and I grew up in a very poor household, so to speak, sort of six of us in one bedroom, outside toilet, outside tin bath, etc. But yet, if I read the national statistics, I grew up in central London in the richest part of the country. Um, I've got friends who come from up north and they tell me about the very prosperous parts of the north. Indeed, when Boris Johnson was prime minister and he was in Blackpool, and he talked about the disparities in the country. He didn't use a north-south divide. He used a comparison between Blackpool and Ribble Valley, which is probably 50 miles away. So I think the imbalances are far uh, more subtle. And indeed, um, a few years ago, when Theresa May was prime minister, shortly after the Brexit referendum, something was set up called the Commission for National Renewal. It was cross-party and with outside experts, including myself as an economist. Unfortunately, she then called a general election, so nothing came to fruition from this. But the reason for mentioning this context is that they had lots of focus groups, and there were about 20 focus groups. And what was the most interesting was the most pessimistic, I think, were Remainers in London. The second most pessimistic were Brexiteers in London, funny enough. But the most optimistic focus groups and the ones who were most pro-free market were in the parts of the country that people always used to associate with wanting to have more government spending, more barriers, more protectionism. And that, that was in the northeast and in one of the parts of the northwest. And it was a very different um, outcome to what one might have expected. Now, the imbalances in the UK are, there are north-south imbalances, but clearly place is not the only issue. And if one looked at place, it'd be urban, rural, coastal inland as well as London versus elsewhere but coming back your, to your point now um, I was at, in Birmingham for the first two days of the Conservative Conference on Sunday and Monday and on Sunday evening um, Liz Truss went to uh, one of the big parties and she spoke for about 10 minutes and in the previous few weeks I'd not heard her mention levelling up at all Yeah, and what was really was interesting yeah, and she mentioned, she, in fact, it was probably the best speeches I've seen her give, uh, maybe because she thought she was amongst friends and she wasn't reading from a script. She, it just flowed really well. And she talked about levelling up. She talked about Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, and also London using different comparisons, which I thought was quite interesting. But I, I think the premise of your question is that um, based on what some people are saying, the success of trust economics, if it's to succeed, is to empower the financial sector, London and the southeast, and not a focus, as Boris Johnson had, on levelling up. But I think it's a lot more than that. For instance, if we just take the city as an example, one of, one of the foundations of trust economics is to succeed is the need for financial and monetary stability. And within that is for the city of London to both become more competitive internationally which is one of the main arguments behind getting rid of the ban on bankers' bonuses or the cap on bankers' bonuses so London can, can compete. But the other aspect of that, which is one that she has talked about, is the need for the financial sector to start servicing the domestic economy far better than it has done. So I think there are different aspects of trust economics 
that should appear appeal to the whole country, not just one geographic area. But I think that is a sort of um, a marketing communication aspect that needs to be addressed. But at the same time, it needs to be seen in terms of um, the delivery, or, or sorry, in terms of the actual policies themselves. She needs to mention levelling up more. Maybe the Northern Powerhouse might need to come back into the uh, phrase, phraseology. But I think it's important to stress that if it is to succeed, then quite clearly not only needs to appeal to the people who voted Conservative at the last election, but in economic terms, it does need to be widespread geographically. Because looking at the you know, some of the individual policies that came out. I mean, I, and we'll talk about the, the, the problems and the, the failures that, that accompanied the, uh, the policy offer, uh, which obviously she's been trying to rectify today during her speech at uh, Conservative Party conference. Um, but just looking at some of the individual measures for a minute, I mean, I pulled together the polling, um, you know, and I appreciate the fact that we shouldn't always have poll led policy that, you know, you political parties and leaders have to go out uh, and they have to, you know, shape shape the arguments and, and, and at times lead people rather than just rely on the polling. But, but here's, here's a couple of numbers on trustonomics. Um, if you look at the changes to national insurance, very, very popular, 60% support it, 71% of conservatives. If you look at cutting the basic rate of income tax, as you'd imagine, very popular. Raising stamp duty thresholds, very popular. The energy plan, very popular. Eighty percent of voters think, "Yep, great. Let's let's have an artificial cap." Um, but then, when you get to the stuff that really dominated the headlines, I mean, bankers' bonuses, removing the cap on bankers' bonuses, twelve percent of voters support it. Uh, abolishing the forty-five percent top rate of tax, eleven percent support it cancelling the planned increase in corporation tax, one in five support it. And I'm I'm not sort of pushing a particular agenda here. I'm just sort of wondering about how the politics of this play out, because you then look at, you know, a number of other surveys we've had this week, 19% of people think the policy offer is fair. Most people don't think it's affordable. They don't think it's competent. So it's we're not talking about a 52-48 divide. In the country, on many of these policies, we're talking like ninety ten or eighty twenty. I mean, so trust doesn't only have to; she doesn't only have to kind of communicate what she's trying to do and how she's trying to do it. She also has to win over a deeply skeptical public, and I just wonder how on earth she does that, um, and whether indeed she's from where she started, whether she can even do that, right? Whether actually path dependency is going to kick in here and. And, and and her message, her agenda has already been shaped by by these remarkably unpopular policies. Yeah, I think that's right. A new government, particularly in a very difficult economic climate as we have in Britain now, um, needs to get off to a good start. Um, there is a whole different series of issues here. Uh, the mini budget, as it became, and initially it was just going to be a fiscal statement, um, really set the sort of <laughs> set the direction shall we say now what was important in my mind was that the initial plans behind that now i'm not involved in the inside so i wasn't privy to any of the details so it was just what i was reading in the press or picking up on the news generally that guided me um, but it was clear that initially it was just going to focus on things that had come up in the leadership campaign which was the energy levy 
and reversing the two big tax increases. What Truss in particular had talked about was that she was worried that Britain was the only G7 country raising taxes into a global downturn. Now, if it had just stuck to those three things, then I think it would have landed very well with three key target audiences, general public, business, and the financial markets. In the event, what turned out landed very poorly, as you've touched on with the general public and indeed with the financial markets, although the mini statement, the mini budget landed very well with business, with the Institute of Directors, Confederation of British Industry and the Federation of Small Businesses, all very positive about it. But the important thing about the um, triple change in, or the, the three things, shall we say, the energy levy and reversing those two big tax increases is that if they had not been addressed, then they would have likely led, in my mind, to a very deep recession that would have blown the public finances out of the water. Um, clearly, allowing energy prices to continue to rise would have crippled people and firms. So it was vital that they stopped that and set the cap as they did. So the government, through its borrowing, will take on the risk. The national insurance tax, I would say you mentioned the general public was positive about that. Yeah, they're right to be. All economists, I would say, would view the national insurance tax increase as a tax on jobs. The corporation tax increase, they really should have articulated this better. Now, the corporation tax rate, according to Rishi Sunak, was due to go up next spring from 19% to 25%. Lots of economists said that that increase wouldn't matter, partly because when the corporation tax rate came down, it didn't boost investment. So the general argument amongst economists is that if you reverse it, then it's going to have a neutral impact on investment. And I understand that argument. But what that argument failed to take into account was that as the tax rate came down over the years, the tax base widened. So the actual tax takes stayed the same. That is, they cut the rate, but they widened what they were, the they being the government, what they were taxing. So if you were suddenly to reverse the tax and go from 19 to 25%, you're actually increasing it on a much wider base. And I think the Centre for Policy Studies, the think tank, pointed out that currently Britain is 11th out of 38 OECD countries in business competitiveness, and we would have gone to 31st with that and other changes next spring. So all those three changes could have been marketed and I think sold well to the general public, to the markets and to the business community. Right. What they then did in the mini budget was just to go too far. You can't have a mini budget where no one marks your homework. Whatever you think about the Office for Budget Responsibility, the OBR, the so-called independent arbitrator forecaster, half the time their forecasts are right, half the time their forecasts are wrong or, the margin, let's say more appropriately, the margin of error on budget forecasts is really high, partly because you're talking about the difference between two very big numbers, government spending, government taxation, which are very sensitive to the stage of the cycle you're in. So it's not as if though the OBR is always accurate or correct. It's more that you do need someone there to check your homework, to actually set the terms of the debate and maybe also influence what the government would do. But when no one is there, and also given that the political rhetoric and the run-up to it had been about taxes, um, it led to the narrative, particularly when the top rate of tax was reduced, that this was primarily or solely about tax cuts. And goodness, they're unfunded as well. Now, if you actually, maybe to take another minute on this answer, if we actually took the mini budget, the energy levy was expensive for an obvious reason. Other countries are also following suit. 
if you then looked at the other tax changes, um, 160 billion over five years, 82% of that, so 82 pence in the pound borrowed, was reversing those two planned tax increases. So hardly a tax cut, more stopping tax increases. So the actual extra tax changes, the tax cuts were 18 pence in the pound, pretty small fry. Now, reducing the top rate, I just thought was bad politics, but it was bad economics as well, because it was unfunded. And even though in economic terms, it's tiny, it added fuel to the fire about unfunded tax cuts. The argument the government put forward was this is about tax simplification as much as about making the UK competitive. Well, if it's about tax simplification, then leave it to a fully funded budget, do it alongside other tax simplification measures that are needed. And let me just run you through the ones that are needed. Um, taking the millions of people out of what's called fiscal drag, when because of higher wages and inflation, you go into a higher tax bracket. You take people out of high marginal tax rates. Many young people in their 20s, when they start to work, start to pay high marginal tax rates because they start to pay off their student loan. If you are lucky to earn over 50 grand and you have child benefit, that starts to be taken away. But then you go on a very high marginal tax rate. And if you're even luckier to be earning over 100 grand, once you go above that, your allowance is taken away, your marginal tax rate goes up. I'm not saying that you preferential for one group over another, but all these are part of tax simplification. If you do all that in one budget together, it's slightly expensive in some respects. There are benefits from it, but you actually have it fully costed and you have lots of winners. Don't do what they did in economic terms, small, but uncosted, adding fuel to the fire that they have unfunded tax cuts and adding fuel to the fire that this is more about um, this sort of just income taxes rather than all the other key aspects because the growth plan that came out the same day as part of that mini budget was really positive, which is why those business groups I mentioned earlier were so enthusiastic at that time about the mini budget itself. So, so why, I mean, you must know some of the people involved in the, in the decisions. I won't ask you to reflect on on the individuals and so on. But why do you think they just did everything at once? Because, you know, on the one hand, you have all of these radical measure, well, radical, you might, some of them were radical, some of them were already in the in the books that were coming down because of, uh, you know, things that had been said over the summer or, um, you know, that had been only introduced by Rishi Sunak fairly recently. But they sort, sort of do everything all at once. Then the Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, says there's more to come. Uh, the markets freak out. Everybody wonders what on earth's going on. And yet they had, what, a good three or four months to plan for this. I mean, this is a thing I can't get my head around. I mean, Trust basically knew she was going to become prime minister, you know, halfway through the summer. She had a good lead in time. Presumably they, you know, war gamed every possible scenario. And yet this still happens. That's what I don't understand. OK, if the mini budget had remained as it was initially um, planned from what I can make out yeah. um, as a fiscal event, because that was the phrase being used, a fiscal event just to get through in that three week period, because um, there was um, the summer recess. Then there was three weeks when Parliament was back. Then there was another recess during the um, all the conferences. So they had I think a short space of time and according to the media generally they wanted to have this uh, fiscal event just to endorse the changes that had been talked about 
during the leadership campaign. The energy price levy, uh, reversing national insurance tax and reversing um, corporation tax increase that was planned. If they just kept to that, I think it would have landed very well. And indeed, who knows, they might even be ahead in the polls. They might have had a very good party conference. Why did they do what they did? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> there's lots of suggestions here. Let's be charitable and say that of the target audiences, the general public, business, and the financial markets, they didn't focus on the financial markets as much as they should have done. Your point then might be, well, judging from how badly that higher tax rate cut landed, uh, they didn't focus as much as they should have done on the general public. Uh, but they they did what they did. Now, what could one say on top of that? Um, by all accounts, the prime minister, if one believes what one hears, um, was not as engaged in the mini budget planning as she might have previously planned, largely for obvious reasons. Well, the Queen died. And then on top of the 10 or 11 days of mourning, uh, the prime minister then had to go to the UN and represented the UK uh, pretty well there, I would say. So she probably returned to London, what, the Wednesday, Thursday, then we had the mini budget or whatever it was called on the Friday. So um, these things probably took their own course. Um, what else might be an explanation? I've no idea if this is true or not, but if one thinks of the electoral timetable, and if you're a supply side economist, you might argue you want to get these things out as quickly as possible. But for me, looking at this, as I am from someone based in the city, I would say that you need to make sure you keep the markets on side. And for the markets, you need to show that any fiscal policy action is necessary, is not inflationary, and that it's affordable. And if they just kept to what the markets expected and had fully priced in or priced in as much as they could because we couldn't fully price in all aspects of the energy levy, but if you kept it to those three things, the energy levy, the reverse or the two big tax increases, uh, then the markets would have been able to price it. And I would say uh, settle on it being affordable. I should say as well, there's one other thing, of course, in recent days, uh, the political argument has been that this was not all about the mini budget. And I think that's important to stress. Um, in fact, there were three things happening almost all together. Uh, the global market environment was becoming uh, very difficult and markets were very febrile. On the Wednesday before the mini budget on the Friday, the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, had increased interest rates by 0.75% and had planned and indicated that there would be another 1.25% increase by Christmas. So that was pretty firm action. That strengthened the dollar across the board, and it also started to push bond yields, borrowing rates up more widely across international markets. Then the following day on the Thursday, the Bank of England had a meeting. The market had priced in fully a 0.5% rate increase, the market was partly pricing in a 0.75% rate increase. They really actually wanted, I would argue, or had hopes for a bigger increase. The bank hiked by 0.5%, so less than the Americans. And then on top of that, very importantly, the Bank of England said that they would proceed with quantitative tightening. So it might be a bit technical, but the gist of it is quantitative easing that we saw in recent years is the printing of money. Quantitative tightening is going the other way. 
and it involves selling gilts. And the Bank of England indicated there would be, in their mind, 80 billion of QT, quantitative tightening over the next year. And the markets didn't like that because what they were thinking was this. Interest rates are rising, uh, nothing to do with the mini budget. Then on top of that, there's going to be increased issuance uh, because the normal gilt issuance as every day. Then we're going to get the increased issuance that the market didn't really think was necessary from the Bank of England because of quantitative tightening. And then on that Friday, we were going to get the increased issuance because of the mini budget. And the mini budget not only delivered, in, shall we say, in terms of the increased issuance, but it also then exacerbated those interest rate fears. So the backdrop really was global markets. Uh, Bank of England also been seen to be behind the curve. And then the unexpectedly larger than a large mini budget uh, with those extra components thrown in that could have been avoided and should have been fully costed. So as the U-turn now on the 45% tax rate, that's that's now happened. Trust has given her set piece at the Conservative conference trying to at least explain the rationale and the philosophy behind what she's trying to do. Arguably, perhaps she should have started there and then sequence the measures throughout the throughout the winter and into early 23 would have been perhaps the more politically logical way of doing it. Um, but nonetheless, we are where we are. So when the Chancellor says or hints that, look, there's more to come, where where do you think we're going over the next six months? I mean, what if you have to rub your crystal ball? I know you have in the past. You've been very successful at, at accurately diagnosing and forecasting where we're going. Where, where do you think Trustonomics is taking us? Okay, there's lots of positive aspects in the plans so far, but they've been overshadowed by the aftermath of the um, mini budget. So what does she need to do? She and her chancellor need to get those three big groups all on side, the general public naturally, um, business community, which seems fully on side, judging from what they've said so far, and the markets. Um, of those, well, each is important. Uh, the initial focus might be very much by the Chancellor on the financial markets. The medium-term fiscal plan is to be unveiled before the end of the month. In that, the Chancellor needs to highlight his fiscal principles, his aims, namely to bring debt to GDP down. And in his conference speech, he stressed fiscal discipline, and that was a positive. Needs to also lay fears, which I don't think are really grounded about the independence of our institutions. Partly during the ref leadership campaign, lots of things were being reported by the press about the OBR, the Bank of England, but none of these seemed to come from the mouth of uh, Liz Truss, etc. But it created the narrative and obviously having a mini budget without the OBR checking the numbers added to that, fueled that fire. So in terms of the markets, though, the issue is this, that the um, markets need to be convinced now about the affordability. Liz Truss... Um, really, through um, using fiscal policies to stabilise the economy, has prevented that deep recession that I alluded to earlier. But it does mean that debt to GDP will be rising in the next couple of years. So that's why there's the talk about having um, some type of austerity, spending cuts. Now, higher inflation plays havoc with public finances. On the positive for the government, it brings more people into higher tax brackets, VAT payments are higher, and therefore, or general spending is higher, VAT receipts are higher. So on the revenue side, they get a windfall gain, shall we say. 
Uh, but on the other side, government spending in real terms is squeezed. So it's how the numbers play out. But there might well be pressure from the markets for the government to show that it's tough on public spending. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, that is the next big debate, right, in British politics is where do how how is this affordable and where do cuts come? Well, it's affordable. In terms of public finances, uh, the issue is this. You can grow the economy, you can borrow, you have austerity, or you have tax changes. Growing the economy is the clear way to get the finances under control. Debt to GDP is the second lowest in the G7. That's a real positive. It's about 90%, different measures of it. Um, um, but roughly 90%. After the Second World War, it was much higher for an obvious reason, about 250%. It came down steadily over time because the economy grew. So growing the public finances, um, growing the economy is the best way to bring the public finances under control. The real difficult backdrop, and it's like tangent from your answer, but I think it's vital to stress here, is that in debt dynamic terms, there's a ratio between R and G, um, probably a bit too early in the podcast to be talking about equations, but R is the rate of interest and G is the rate of economic growth. And if your rate of economic growth is much higher than your rate of interest, you're okay. But if you suddenly have weak growth and you're starting to have a much higher rate of interest and your debt level is high, well, it's pretty equivalent to anyone who's been a student maybe or or any time in their life. If your credit card bills are high and interest repayments are high, you obviously max out on your cards. You can't afford to pay the debt each month. It's a difficult situation. So it's about uh, keep getting the level down and actually growing uh, the economy so you can afford the payments, etc. But the real challenge is this for Western economies. Since 2008, we've had a cheap money policy. And cheap money, low interest rates, has caused havoc. It might have hidden loads of problems. Cheap money has led to asset price inflation, including high property prices. Admittedly, we haven't built enough properties, but people have borrowed more, taken out bigger borrowings. It's added to other problems. So cheap money is not only asset price inflation, it's meant markets have not priced properly for risk because when interest rates are low, everything looks cheap and affordable. Zombie firms have survived because they've still been able to sort of tick over. There's been an inefficient allocation of capital as a result. It's also allowed inflation to take hold, as we've seen over the last year and a half, although there have been other factors as well. And it's also meant that we've not really taken firm action to address our underlying economic problems and challenges. Now, cheap money, though, means that you can run high debt levels for some time. As interest rates rise in response to inflation, it starts to make the whole debt dynamics more challenging. And when you come back to the UK, that is the sim- it's a similar issue elsewhere. Higher interest rates suddenly make the need to bring your debt to GDP down more important. It also makes it vital to keep the markets on side because globally public debt levels are at an all-time high in the wake of the pandemic. Across the world, apart from China and Japan, most central banks are raising interest rates. So investors need to be convinced twice that, or they need further convincing to buy debt. Obviously, the sooner we get to interest rates peaking and inflation starting to fall, it makes the backdrop okay. But 
as we've talked about, the UK is issuing more debt, other countries are issuing more debt. And 31% of our debt actually currently is held by the Bank of England, who made it easy for the government a year and a half ago by buying the debt through quantitative easing. They shouldn't do that now because of the associated problems. But it comes back to the question, it's a difficult backdrop because the markets um, need to have confidence in your policy. So one aspect is the challenging aspect about squeezing spending. But the other positive or to counteract that is the positive about the longer term plan. And I think Liz Trust or the Prime Minister really needs to go big on selling her longer term growth plan and to make sure that people understand it has lots of positives in it. I think the markets would buy into it if they understood it and the general public might start to be one round. Uh, the terminology is supply side. What does that mean? I would say it's all the eyes. It's more investment, not just in plant and machinery, but in people, skills and training. It's more innovation. Britain has more universities in the top 100 than the rest of Western Europe put together. But we need to innovate more in the back of it. And also in the growth plan, it was talking about issues about finance to innovative firms. The other eye is infrastructure. And uh, Liz Truss is big on this in terms of changing solvency to um, to encourage more insurance money to go into investment, infrastructure investment. And that's very important for one of your initial questions, the levelling up agenda. And then it's about incentives, which is sort of keeping regulations smart, not too burdensome, and actually keeping taxes low. And then if you get all that right, then the final eye falls into place, which is inequality starts to come down. So I think the terminology needs to be more accessible so people understand it. But there's no doubt that in terms of the sequencing, and you mentioned it, it's a difficult one because the markets need to be brought inside and the markets tend to be sort of less forgiving and also um, less, shall we say, friendly than your average politician might be. The politicians want to obviously keep the voters on side. So that's a difficult one. So to counteract that, it's vitally important that people need to understand that there's no easy way out of this. We've got to compete more with international firms from other countries. We've got to compete more with countries um, on the other side of the world. Um, Western Europe's in a very difficult position generally. So we're not the only country that faces these challenges. But to counteract that in the narrative, and then to execute it. Many of the things in the growth plan that need to be passed through Parliament might become harder to pass through Parliament. And indeed, the reason it seems that the Prime Minister and her Chancellor had to re reverse that higher top rate tax earlier this week was because of the threat from some of um, her party members, or sorry, her party MPs, that they would not support the finance bill, which is effectively a vote of confidence. So. Um, to bring it all together, three parts really in answer to your question. The markets need to be brought inside, but that means being tough on spending. Second, she needs to actually really sell that growth plan to the general public as well as to the markets. Businesses seem to have bought into it. And then she needs to execute, get through Parliament, any parts of the supply side agenda, whether it's linked to planning, whether it's linked to investment zones, or whether it's linked to childcare. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the lessons of the of the previous round of uh, supply side reforms, you know this a lot more, a lot better than I do. But I think I'm right in saying the the effects tend to be 
uh, a long time coming. They, they're not immediate, right? They take, they take a while to come through the system. Uh, so even if you're won over by Liz Truss's argument, by the reforms that you've, you've just outlined, you're, you're still looking at a fairly significant period of time until until you start to reap the dividends. And I guess on the, which brings me to the politics, because if you look at just how quickly the trust uh, brand uh, has fallen in the polls, um, I have never seen anything like it in 25 years of looking at polls and politics and so on, in that, you know, the Conservative Party is now averaging I mean, it's low in the 20s, deep into the 20s. Um, Liz Truss's approval ratings are minus 33. That's lower than Boris Johnson at the worst of Partygate. I mean, you know, this is this is difficult stuff to recover from. And I'm trying to, I guess, figure out in my mind whether this is a case of the public rejecting Trussonomics, whether it's the fact that Truss has simply inherited a brand a party, um, a set of ideas, uh, a, a government that was already deeply tainted in the eyes of, of many voters. You know, after 12 years, it is hard to keep going in government. It is hard to revitalize support. Uh, whether it is simply about trust herself, voters have taken one look and said, you know what, she, she's too wooden, she's too dry, there's no personal charm there there's very little charisma and I, I guess in time we'll we'll figure out which one of the variables is is more significant than other but than others but but the fact remains the party is collapsing as we talk I mean it is collapsing in the polls so I I'm skeptical that actually trust will even see the effects of these reforms and it may be that we end up in this bizarre scenario of a sort of labor government, presiding over some of the effects of what's being implemented at the moment. Yeah, well, if you look at it from an economic perspective, then you can sort of detach yourself from the politics and say uh, many of the supply side measures are needed, uh, particularly investment and training. And the real positive is hopefully the debate about the need to have a pro-growth economic agenda. Important to stress here, this is different from a gopher growth. It's not a barber boom, a maudling boom. Um, we had booms and busts under maudling barber, Brown and Lawson. We haven't yet had the boom yet. So, um, But it, this is different. It's about uh, boosting investment. So the, what we're seeing, I think, in answer to your question, is a reflection of a very difficult economic climate now. Even though the jobs market is still very strong, People are worried. They're worried about their finances. They're worried about the constant negative narrative they hear or read about. Um, also, I think an important word is fairness. Um, since the Second World War, the social contract has been implicit in everything we've done in the UK. Now, in her mini budget, it was very much an aim as part of the levy to help everyone. So that positive aspect didn't maybe register, even though, as you've mentioned earlier, the general public liked it, but maybe addressing that sort of apparent shortfall, the social contract fairness issue. Um, Thatcher, I remember as a student, gosh, 
going back in the day, before the Falklands War, uh, which started sort of April 82, I think it was, Thatcher was the most unpopular prime minister of all time at that time, or um, most unpopular so far. Um, and suddenly something happened, namely the Falklands War, and she became the most popular. Obviously, Michael Foote, I think, was then leader of the Labour Party. But events changed. A year ago, if we'd had this podcast, Labour, in the wake of their party conference a year ago, was in the doldrums. The Tory party was really high. I was in Liverpool at the beginning of last week. Um, and by all accounts, the mood at Labour's party was, conference was very good, empowered maybe by that cut in or that top rate of tax cut that had been announced the previous Friday. Tory party conference very much in the doldrums. The point is that things can change if one looks over the last year, if one looks at Thatcher herself. Uh, the divided aspect is what you touch on. I find it quite remarkable, really just quite remarkable, how some politicians seem to think they can ride roughshod over election results. 2016, we had the biggest vote in British history for Brexit referendum. Now, whether you voted for or against it, we then had a three-year political crisis where some politicians... Um, leading politicians on both sides, you might say, uh, wanted to reverse it. And likewise, what I picked up in Birmingham was some people almost wanting to reverse the leadership result and to replace trust. So a divided party never helps, and that's for the politicians to sort out. But the final point is that the UK economy is remarkably resilient. We have shock after shock after shock, and we do bounce back. And that makes me positive, although I do think the imbalances in the economy and the weak trend rate of growth really do need to be addressed. And whatever happens to Liz Truss, I think she's put that pro-growth agenda at the centre of the debate, not just the political debate, but the economic debate as well. Well, I think she certainly needs to, as she started to do today with her speech, she really needs to articulate what what that even means for Joe blogs on the street, what, why we need a growth agenda. And it may be obvious to, 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 to people on the left and the right. I mean, I was listening to Tony Blair this morning, give an interview in which he said, essentially, Truss's diagnosis was correct, but the prognosis was not one he supported, you know, that there is an acceptance, I think, on the left and the right that, and in the centre, that actually, we do need to get to the bottom of the growth problem, we do need to get to the bottom of the productivity problem. And that we need to seriously make a lot more out of the regional potential that we have in the country. I'm just still in a shock, I think, as to how badly the politics of this have been executed over the last two weeks. And I think, you know, the lesson, there are two lessons in political science, I think, which are which may come back to haunt the prime minister. But I'm happy to be wrong. One is voters like economically competent parties. That's that's rule one. Uh, If you're not seen as economically competent, then you're stuffed. The second is voters hate divided parties. They hate them, can't stand them. Uh, And if you lose cabinet responsibility in week four and you have cabinet ministers openly complaining, that is a massive problem. In fact, actually, there's a third rule as well, which is if you preside over anything that looks like an economic crisis, you know, you think about 67, 76, 92, 2008, you generally tend to go on and lose the next election. It's hard as an incumbent to overcome uh, uh, that that experience. So this is not, I'm not, you know, saying, as you say, things change. We're in a highly volatile period. The last 10 years, we've had 
more voters changing their minds than ever before. 60% have changed their votes from one party to another. I'm open to the idea that a year from now, yet again, things could look radically different. But there is just, my instinct is telling me that there is just something that has come undone this week that I'm not sure it can be put back together. I'm just not sure that Liz Truss has the people around her, the team, the communications team in particular, who grasp how to tell voters a story and then execute it. And and that's that's my gut reaction in week four of the of the trust premiership. Uh you may disagree, Jared. Um No, I, I, I think you've hit it a nail on the head, so to speak. It's it's what you say and it's also what you do. And there needs to be a clear sense of direction where people feel it's good for them good for their family and positive for the country. But the numbers are really quite stark. Um, before the 2008 global financial crisis, not that I'm harking always back to that, but that's when we had train growth that was around 2.5%. Then the economy doubled in size in real terms every 29 years. Currently, the economy doubles in size every 60 years. That's what it means. And yet expectations are high, they're rising. And it's about addressing practical problems for people with the housing market, rental. We haven't gone into those different issues. But before she became prime minister, I think the uh, Liz Truss mentioned the three issues, um, energy, uh, the economy and health. So the health issue this winter. But that's not just about money. It's about reform. But there are some big challenges. Um, she, well, her party has not or her government has not got off to a particularly good start. Um, I think that uh, they didn't do as they should have done it. I would think I was, the day of the mini budget, immediately after it, I was interviewed on TV and radio. I said, gosh, you could almost give this seven and a half, eight out of 10, because there are so many good bits in the growth plan, almost two pages of infrastructure projects. There's things to actually boost investment. But I said, this is all going to be overshadowed by, something in economic terms that's quite small, that's unnecessary, and that's cutting the top rate of tax. Yeah, never mind the politics. The economics didn't make sense at that time. You can frame these in different ways at different other aspects, as I was saying in terms of earlier about tax simplification and about competitiveness. But um, we are where we are, as they say. And if they are to get the show back on the road, then they need to sort of win over the markets in the next few weeks then they need to deliver that longer-term plan to the general public, uh, get business to invest as they look like they will do, get the markets further on side, and then they need to get the politicians to execute it in Parliament as well. So at least it's clear what needs to be done. It's about whether she and her team can do it, and let's wait and see. Let's watch this space indeed. And uh, I wanted to thank you as well for giving up your time. And I'm sure it's a mad time for you at the moment. It must be incredibly busy. And uh, as always, uh, I've enjoyed watching your commentary and reading your pieces. And as I said, uh, uh, there is a great podcast at the beginning. Um, with what the hell is economics? That's what, right. What the hell is economics? Do check it out. And uh we will continue to watch the Trust Premiership closely. Jared, thank you for your time and your insights. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure to be here. Take care.